Hello, and welcome to the Long-Term Investing Podcast with Baskin Wealth Management. I'm Barry Schwartz, Chief Investment Officer. Baskin Wealth Management is an independently owned investment management firm with almost $2 billion in assets under management, providing customized wealth management solutions and services to families and foundations. In this podcast, we ignore all the noise and have conversations that make sense about the things that matter in today's markets. It's what we talk about with each other here in the office, and we want to share those conversations with you. Please stay tuned for our legal disclaimer at the end of the episode. We are real here, not AI actors, Ernest. So thank you for joining me today on a day when an AI stock, NVIDIA, is up, I think, about close to 30%. I've never seen a large cap stock like that go up that much in one day. And I, th- I think it started, did it, was last year the stock was like $180, now it's $380 today. Uh, so the stock has doubled in, more than doubled in 12 months. Of course, you should expect these kind of things to happen with stocks all the time. No one should be surprised. We saw Netflix double in it in a year. We saw stocks go down 50, 60, 70 percent in 2022. Isn't this just how stocks work sometimes? I think it is. I think it's really hard to be a long-term investor and take a long-term perspective mm-hmm. in a company like NVIDIA when the growth story makes a lot of sense. Totally. AI is going to require more chips. Mm-hmm. But you know, when you have a stock that goes from 40 bucks before COVID to $300 in 2021, down to $100 last year, and now I, th- I think it's about 400 bucks today. Yeah, close to it. Like, I, I want something that I can sleep at night. It's hard to live through, um, and but you don't get to choose what your stock price does. And I look at, for example, Meta, Facebook, right? And a stock that uh, we owned, uh, clients owned, uh, we actually sold it um, after they converted the name to Meta, probably waited a little too long, but the stock went from $380, I believe, down to $80, now back to $250 today. Um, you know, not a lot had changed, of course, from $200 to $80 back to $250, but it is hard to live through those drawdowns. And easier said than done, I damn, I wish I would have held on or I wish I would have bought more. But the narratives at that time are completely different than the narratives at this time when the stock is doing well. And I think you can really see why some people like the appeal of, of names like you know, Procter & Gamble or mm-hmm. Hershey's yeah. or, or consumer staples type names where things don't really change that much year to year. No, they don't. But anything can happen to any company at any time. And so... That's why we manage portfolios, not a portfolio of three stocks. So we've got a bunch of things we want to talk about today, Ernest, we have on our list. And so um, let's first cover, I think, uh, Brookfield. So we did a podcast, uh, one of our podcasts on Brookfield Corporation. We talked at that time about the split to Brookfield Asset Management. The stock at that time of the split, we thought it was undervalued. Of course, the world has changed since we did that podcast. At the time, no one was really worried about commercial real estate. And Brookfield Corporation, that's the parent, uh, owns a significant stake in real estate as well as Brookfield Asset Management. The, uh, the asset manager, the fund manager also invests in real estate. 
And no one likes real estate right now, of course. Things can change. But uh, your your thoughts on Brookfield, I see it recently announced a, sh- a meaningful share buyback. Bruce Flatt has commented that the, the stock- CEO. The CEO of, of Brookfield Corporation, Bruce Flatt, said the stock is very cheap and he's putting his money where his mouth is by buying more shares of the parent. So go ahead. Yes, I actually wrote a blog on Brookfield Corporation. Is it up on our website now? Yeah, I think it was just posted today. Beautiful. So uh, if you're interested, uh, we can post it in the the show notes. We will. And you can take a look. But I think the valuation is is very attractive. Um, the, in the last quarter, they had some very helpful disclosures mm-hmm. about their commercial real estate exposure, which I think really helped prove the point that they were making that they were not gambling with their money, the leverage was reasonable, and the 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 even the office properties that they own are are, are fully leased up and mm-hmm. locked in at good rates for a long time. That's right. I mean, we're in an office right now. Not many of us here, but we're in an office. We have escalators. The price escalators for the next three years till our um, till our lease matures. I assume in three years, when the that lease matures, we'll renegotiate something else. Maybe we'll we won't need as much space. Maybe everybody will be back to the office full time. Maybe we'll have tons more clients because of this podcast, and we'll need more portfolio managers and analysts. Don't know, but you know, right now everybody is assuming that uh, uh, office space is isn't going down the tubes. And and I think one of the things that has been a little under-discussed about Brookfield, uh, especially Brookfield Corporation, is that the management team has done this for a long time. Like they've, they have a terrific track record of, of managing their portfolio, buying things when they're cheap, and, and really managing the business through the, the cycle. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's a little short-sighted to, to focus specifically on their, their commercial real estate portfolio, which, by the way, is is almost all non-recourse to the business. So so it, so essentially said another way, if all their real estate went bankrupt, it wouldn't have a material impact on the balance sheet. Well, no, no. Yeah. Like if if all their re- real estate went bankrupt, like that would be... That Disastrous. Would be, that would be very bad. Very bad. <laughs> but I think if you look at, like let's say they like one of their buildings in, in Los Angeles defaulted last week, for example, mm-hmm. and they handed the keys back to yeah. the lender. Mm-hmm. That has no impact on the rest of Brookfield. Correct. And it may mean less revenues overall for Brookfield's uh, real estate division, but no impact to Brookfield materially. Right. Their losses are only limited to the equity mm-hmm. that they have in the property. Correct. And in the meantime, hasn't the equity, I mean, the public markets are telling you what they think Brookfield is worth? Well, we know what they're telling you. And if you do the math on what it has in terms of uh, the stakes and publicly traded uh, securities, right? Brookfield owns a number of publicly listed uh, spinoffs as well as other assets. Essentially, that commercial real estate on its own is not being valued at anything. Yes. And I think more importantly is that the management is is willing to put its mouth mouth where its money is. or Yeah, money where its mouth is. That's probably a better way of saying it. Yeah. Um, and they have hinted that they are going to, you know, sell things at, at at good valuations to buy back stock. That makes a lot of sense to me. So I I think that if you're willing to you know look through the next year, yeah, um, which 
then you, you'll probably have a pretty good outcome. Well, this is the parable always of, of Mr. Market. When Mr. Market is excited, he'll offer you the best prices and crazy prices for your stock. Maybe NVIDIA is a good example. And when he's depressed, he offers you stupid prices and you can either ignore them or take advantage of it. And smart managers take advantage of opportunities when their stock price is depressed, when it's, when it's trading at a discount to what they think the intrinsic value is. Intrinsic value is really, you know, what you think the business is worth when you look at all the cash flows in, in, in the future and discount it back at a normal rate. And I, it doesn't, I mean, you don't even need high level math to work out that Brookfield's trading at a discount. I think it's now everybody knows that, but that doesn't necessarily mean the stock price goes up over, overnight. I think for Brookfield, there's also some more technical reasons why the shares are trading at a discount. It's that when you look at the market, there are many different types of investors who have different objectives. Mm -hmm. Like some investors like dividends, some investors care a little bit less about dividends and look more for for capital appreciation. Mm -hmm. And so when Brookfield did the split of the asset manager, mm -hmm. a lot of investors who may be a little more interested in the dividends, they they simply sold their Brookfield Corp stock to Correct. buy Brookfield Asset Management. Which is done a, a lot better. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so I think these kinds of of flows can have an impact on the stock as well, um, which I think if you if you pay attention to them, like sometimes there may be opportunities. Absolutely. So that's very interesting. And, you know, for full disclosure, today uh, I bought more shares of Brookfield Corporation for Barry Schwartz's portfolio, and we've been buying more shares for clients. We continue to buy more shares. And like Bruce Flatt, the CEO of Brookfield, we think the better opportunity for our clients right now dollar for dollar is in the parent Brookfield Corporation ticker BN. So we're putting our money where our mouth is. Uh, Ernest, let's move on to what do you what, what was next on our list? We we're going to talk about just talk a little bit about bank stocks, bank Canadian stock. banks. Yeah. So Canadian banks are in the news. They reported, I think they're reporting first quarter earnings as expected. They were meh. They are reserving uh, more money against future loan losses. Everybody's telling us we're going into a recession. If you're in a regulated industry, you cannot ignore that. And you probably want to appease the regulators by showing that you're paying attention to that potential by reserving against loan losses. You know, the bank earnings, as I, I told a reporter today, when you look at them quarter to quarter, they look silly. When times are good, they reserve less against losses because no one's going to default on anything. When times are lousy or expected to be lousy, you reserve more. So you can't really learn too much about uh, or, or what trends are happening. Maybe the banks are being too conservative. Maybe they're not being conservative enough. We don't know. But the truth is, over the last few years, when you look at the earnings of the big Canadian banks, they've kind of gone nowhere. All right? I see Royal Bank's earnings... Uh, flat from 2021 to 2023, Bank of Nova Scotia down a little bit. So, I mean, people can say that the Canadian bank stocks are cheap. They may be right on future basis. But at the moment, if you have no earnings growth, it's not like you're going to should expect your earning price earnings multiple to jump. Yeah, I, I think the environment for the Canadian banks is is certainly not not great at the moment. Like you said, they're they're seeing higher lo loan losses from things like commercial real estate and credit card 
Though, that makes sense. Though they're still, I think, important to point out that they're quite a bit lower than they were before COVID. That's very interesting. So, I, yeah, I mean, COVID exacerbated some trends when there was free money and zero interest rates. No one was defaulting on anything. And when people were paid not to work, um, you know, not really too much trouble for the banks. Yeah, so that's, that's the first thing. Uh, second is that they're seeing some margin pressure. Uh, both as as depositors are shifting to term deposits, mm-hmm. and and because they they overhired a little bit in the last couple of years, are are the banks expecting to lay off anybody? I think the plan before was that they were they they were planning to manage their 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 cost their employee base through attrition, so mm-hmm. just letting people just letting people leave. Yeah. And and so and you raised an interesting point about the deposits, of course. Uh, you know, I look at my bank account, and if I leave any money in there, I think I earn nothing. Whereas I can buy a high interest savings, a GIC, a money market. I can do lots of things and maybe get four percent. And so, when the bank doesn't have my money to pay me nothing and rent it out at five six percent, that puts pressure on its margins and its earnings. A little bit, like they can get some of it back on the asset side, correct? For sure, correct, um, but. That's certainly something that has been uh, a theme in the last few quarters. Mm-hmm. Loan demand is certainly quite weak, especially for, for residential mortgages. I mean, that's not a surprise, right? Um, I see prime rate, in, prime rate in the U.S. is like 7% or yeah, Canada close to that. It's hard to borrow money. It's hard to even a lot of you know a lot of people like to bet on stocks when interest rates are low and you can borrow money for nothing but at 7% that's a high hurdle it's a high hurdle to borrow money to start a new business even to get a mortgage and lastly the the wealth managements and the capital markets business lines are are, are certainly quite weak uh, reflective of the the weak markets overall as well so uh, i think it'll be it'll be a bit of a ru- a, a lumpy period for the canadian banks although Long term, they've they've been spectacular investments for Canadians. Yes, they have. Um, is there any reason, Ernest, to think that in the future the earnings um, will not be as good as they were in the past five or ten years? Is there any structural reasons? No, for I th- that? no. I think the last twenty years has really shown how resilient the Canadian banking system is. Mm-hmm. The model of having large integrated banks that touch every aspect of, of financial markets. Mm-hmm. I think if there was one thing to maybe pay a little bit more attention to, it would be on the regulatory front. Yeah, banks are a popular political target. Like, mm-hmm. No one really loves the Canadian banks, and and the government seem to think that it's a it's a pot of money that they can just they can just take from from time yes. to time. Yeah, and so. Whether that's a one-time thing or a longer-term trend, we'll see. But that—that that is the one thing that, that I would watch for. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, and everybody's always worried about um, technological innovation, uh, fintech, as they call it, how that impacts the Canadian banks. So far, so good. And, and, and banking is a cyclical business as well, right? It is not a recession-proof, recession, recession-resistant type business. When times are tougher, when people don't feel as rich, when interest rates are higher, um, there's less wealth management activities, uh, less new issues, and and those are good margin type businesses for the Canadian banks. 
Um, but in the meantime, the positives are the dividend yields, obviously. The stocks haven't done well, so the dividend yields are higher. They keep on raising the dividends. Many of them are now very flush with uh, very strong balance sheets. And so, um, you know, with uh, worries, there also comes opportunity. So we're going to move on to our feature discussion of today, which is a company that makes labels and adhesives. Uh, you know, exciting business. And when everybody wants to be invested in AI, here's a real physical business. And the company is Canadian-based. It trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange, and it's called CCL Industries. I referenced it before, I think, in my first podcast, but never went into de detail with you. And you recently attended its uh, uh, annual uh, investor meeting or uh, general meeting, and uh, you have some interesting comments and things to share about CCL Industries. So, Ernest, why don't you hit it off? So, like you said, there are companies like like Apple and Microsoft and Netflix where you know, they make big, flashy consumer brands that, that everybody knows about and totally. you, can, you can get excited about their, their yeah. growth story. Yeah, the Peter Lynch, right? Invest in companies and that you where you use their products and services. And then there are companies that are, are, are more behind the scenes, I would say. Um, you don't, you, it, and CCL Industries, I think, would definitely belong to that latter group. It's... CCL is the largest label maker in the world. Is that true? And by labels, they make labels of, of every type from shampoo bottle labels to, to the security tags that you see when you're, you're shopping at Levi's in the mall mm -hmm. to the, the shiny Intel inside stickers that you get when you buy a laptop. Mm -hmm. So makes, they, they make all sorts of labels and, and very likely you're using a CCL product today. Mm -hmm. Now, I think... Like a CCL would be the first to to tell you that it's not rocket science that they're they're doing. Mm -hmm. There's nothing super proprietary about making a label. Like no. uh, me and you could go and start a label plant tomorrow. Yes. Buy a piece of equipment. Yeah, we could buy we could buy a, a label plant, an operating label plant, run it, try and get uh, customers, suppliers, blah blah blah. But would we be as successful as CCL? Right. And so what CCL has done is they have focused on providing higher quality premium labels that require a little bit more technology and sophistication um, that they can charge higher prices for. Mm -hmm. So for example, like they were the ones who invented those those beer labels that, that change color when they're put in ice. Is that still a thing? I don't know if it's still a thing, but they invented drank, those labels. Try not to drink a lot of beer lately. Or they they also make a lot of labels that, that provide authenticity or, or security features to mm -hmm. for, for the products that they're attached to. That makes sense. And, and this is a very valuable thing in emerging markets for large consumer packaged goods firms like, like Johnson & Johnson. Where there's a lot of uh, theft and copying. Exactly. Mm. And oftentimes, these large uh, consumer packaged firms would actually ask CCL to help them operate a plant in places like Brazil or in in India or, yeah. or Indonesia. And so CCL has a very large emerging markets business today as well. Mm -hmm. And they are these are growing businesses that will will benefit from the rise of the middle class in these these types of places. Mm -hmm. So it's a very well run business. Um, they operate in a very decentralized structure with a local management team and they 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 make decent margins. That's all 
all nice and fine. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of fine businesses like CCL. But, exactly. But the more exciting part about the thesis is that CCL has done a really good job in capital allocation, mm-hmm. especially in, in doing M&A. So most of the time, as the largest player, they are go- the CEO, Jeffrey Martin, and, and his team are, are going around and visiting all these little labeling companies that exist. And they are able to buy these at, at, at very attractive prices, mm-hmm. usually five or six times EBITDA, where uh, they earn mm-hmm. about like, easily double-digit returns mm-hmm. on them. They'll buy them. They'll, they'll give them a little bit more sophistication in how to run the business, maybe a little bit more capital if they need to upgrade the equipment. Mm-hmm. And, and they've, they've made a lot of money doing these deals uh, and, and grown their, by geography as Is well. Is there any other synergies involved in maybe acquiring a plant in Indonesia where you can fit it into a gigantic network like CCL has, where it operates in a lot of different economies or not really? Well, sometimes, and this goes back to the point I made before, mm-hmm. is that sometimes Unilever or, or Johnson & Johnson will actually ask CCL to acquire a plant yeah. because they run it better than other people. Mm-hmm. And so that's happened a couple of times. That's pretty exciting. Beyond these little tuck-in deals, they also, from time to time, do large uh, transformative acquisitions, Mm -hmm. uh, which is what the term that they would use. Yeah. And they have, they've made a lot of money doing this. Um, CCL is, is extremely opportunistic. They, they're, they're always waiting for the proverbial fat pitch. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and two examples is in 2013, CCL bought a business from Avery Dennison, which is another uh, large label maker in the U.S. Yeah. Everybody, uh, people know Avery from its school supply business. Yep, they they so that's another CCL business, which line. is now owned by CCL. Yeah, and in 2016 they bought a business which is a public company called Checkpoint Systems, which mm-hmm. makes the security gates that that you see when you you go into a retailer and and try and if you try and steal something it'll, it'll set <laughs> off an alarm. Like those gates are also made by CCL. Yeah, well, there's a big problem around uh, North America right now with theft. Um, I mean, those gates now have to probably zap you or something while you're stealing the <laughs> the equipment from Best Buy because I, I don't know if anybody actually uh, is adhering to those rules. But that's a that's a story for another day. But but without going into too much detail, mm-hmm. in in both cases, Avery and Checkpoint, CCL was able to acquire these at extraordinarily attractive prices. Yeah, because they were being sold by a, a very motivated seller under very special circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, and today, um, both of them are, are large, important lines of business for CCL. Yeah, and, and CCL has earned multiples on its ac- acquisition price, and they've used that cash flow from those acquisitions. Well, it's kind of, it sounds like a Constellation software kind of theme. Use that to, to pay more dividends, make ac- uh, other acquisitions. So it's a very acquisitive company. As you mentioned, exactly, and not every deal has been as as successful as these two, but it's going to happen. But today, the balance sheet is 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 in terrific shape, mm-hmm. um, and their um, acquisition multiples are, are are coming down as interest mm-hmm. rates rise, mm-hmm. and there's a there's a lot of opportunity for them to continue to do deals. So you went to the annual general meeting to uh, listen to the what the company had to say and also try to get some FaceTime with the CEO as well as um, some insiders there. I assume that this wasn't as well attended as a Berkshire Hathaway or Constellation software type meeting. No, 
I was I was actually the only attendee who was not on the board. Uh, Interesting. So clearly, this is something that everyone wants to go to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what insights did you gain? Or uh, obviously, n- nothing public, uh, nothing private. But um, were there? Uh, did you get a better appreciation of the management or the management style from the company? Yeah, I I, I think one of the things about CCL that that is is very typical in in so-called compounders mm-hmm. is they have a a lot of alignment between the 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 board and the owners and the the management with the shareholders mm-hmm. and that's that's what you see with CCL yeah the the board um, is controlled by the Lang family mm-hmm. which um, provides a lot of stability the CEO has has been running this for a long time Jeffrey Martin Jeffrey Martin yeah he he owns a lot of stock love it love um, it mm-hmm. And like when I asked him uh, what the secession plan was, he he said, "Well, uh, like he still has like thirty years. He he still has thirty years younger than yeah. than Charlie Munger. Mm-hmm. So still like clearly there's a lot of management stability here. So he's still motivated to get on airplanes and exactly. go find the next acquisition target exactly. for CC. So is he is he involved in approving all M and A deals and actively involved uh, there? Well, that's 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 what he does. That's what he does. Uh, CCL is a very like I said, it's a very decentralized organization. Mm-hmm. The the CEO Jeffrey Martin, he's flying around like over 200 days a year. It's exactly what you want. Exactly what you want. Yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah. so what what do you, so what do we see as the opportunity? And talk a little bit about valuation, of course. Right. So the the opportunity is that labels are 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 really in everything. Like mm-hmm. they like everything has labels, right? And and so. Their market opportunity is really quite big. Yeah, every single product, that physical product that's sold, whether it's in a store or wholesale, or behind the scenes, has to have some type of adhesive or label on it. Right. Mm-hmm. So there, there's no concerns that they will run out of things to acquire in mm-hmm. the near term. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the meantime, like when the stock is cheap, they'll they'll do a little bit of buybacks. Yeah, they have a track record of doing that. Yeah, I think they were buying back stock in the low fifty range, and stock is now close to seventy dollars. So the the last type, uh, the last few buybacks have been quite uh, value additive for shareholders. And the share price today is is trading in the high teens multiple, which mm-hmm. is you know, certainly not like a like a deep value stock, mm-hmm. but but reasonable enough for a company that has compounded capital for for a dub, at double digit rates of return. Yeah. So what we want for this company is for Jeffrey Martin to be on a plane for 200 days of a year and 200 days in a year and go make more, us more acquisitions. And this is what you call a sidecar investment. Uh, we're along for the ride. We've got great management. We've got insiders who own a significant stake or providing stability uh, that see lots of value long term. And it may not be as sexy as and exciting as owning uh, Amazon or NVIDIA. But there's a place in your portfolio for a company like this, and we always talk about Ernest. We love to own companies that have, you know, some terrific built-in competitive advantage and natural moat, uh, where it's very hard to copy. And customers love its product and services. I mean, those are everybody knows those types of companies. We love those types of companies. But there's also companies run by terrific managers that may not be in such a wonderful business or a business that has great economics but they know how to create value through acquisitions and capital allocation. And that's where CCL fits the bill. So 
check it out. That's a great overview of CCL. Anything else you want to add or anything else we're missing there? No, I, I think I think if you look at the share price of CCL, mm-hmm. it hasn't really done very much for the last five years. Mm-hmm. But like earnings not, not a lot of stocks have. I mean, we've gone through some crazy times. Yeah. But I, I think the I think the setup is very attractive mm-hmm. because like earnings have certainly been growing yeah. through that period. And the balance sheet is in much cleaner shape than it's been. Mm-hmm. And 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 the valuation is lower than it has been for a while as well. Yeah. I, I mean the, the the caveat or the negative someone would say is, well, aren't we heading into a slower time or recession and the demand for labels and adhesives should slow as you know, maybe people buy fewer things and maybe there's too much inventory, yada yada. But that's short term thinking. And of course CCL would say we're gonna use our balance sheet to make acquisitions if those things happen and we can't wait to buy more things cheaper. So long-term, always thinking long-term. That's the name of the podcast. Anything you're reading or watching that's interesting, basketball's done, Toronto Maple Leaf hockey is done, so we don't have to talk about that anymore. Um, Anything you want to share, Ernest? I've been reading the autobiography of Indra Nui. I hope I pronounced it correctly. I don't even know who that is. Who was the former uh, CEO of PepsiCo. Okay. I think she's obviously a very... uh, influential person because mm-hmm. of her uh, because she's a minority and, and a woman leading one of the the largest corporations in the very, world she was very successful yes now i now i know whom whom you're talking about yeah and it's a it's a fascinating story about the the, the journey that she's taken mm-hmm. uh to to running pepsi i mean pepsi uh, I think it makes as much money selling Pepsi as it does selling Doritos and potato chips. And that's been the path it's taken versus Coke and been very successful over the last few years, the stock and um, the Doritos are yummy and tasty. So congrats to them. Um, I haven't been reading anything really too exciting, but I would recommend Beef on Netflix. It's a pretty cool show and lots of crazy stuff happens there. So uh, if you want to check out a show that will blow your mind, uh, check out Beef. That's my recommendation. So Ernest Wong, thank you for joining me today on the podcast and we'll see everybody back here real soon. This podcast is for informational purposes only and any forecasts on the economy, markets, or individual securities should not be viewed as investment advice, a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Clients of Baskin Wealth Management and the speakers on this podcast may own shares of the companies discussed. Information on this podcast is current as of the time of production and is subject to change. If you have any questions or would like to subscribe to these podcasts, visit our website at baskinwealth.com.